I don't think that Paul woke up very many days and didn't think about using his, his day and his life in a way that counted. He, on several occasions, talks about how uh, his previous life before he met Christ or before Christ uh, connected with him on the Damascus Road, and uh, he was gung-ho in his ministry for God, but was very misguided, as he said, I did it in ignorance and unbelief as I persecuted the church. And a man like that is definitely interested in making every moment count for Jesus Christ once he realizes how fundamentally wrong he had been. I don't know when Christ saved you. I don't know the moment that you went from being in darkness into his, coming into his marvelous light. But hopefully we're redeeming the time. We're mindful about uh, how we use our moments today and tomorrow and the next day based upon there is a finish. For some of us, it might be more rapid than we realize. So we do need to be good stewards of our day. Teach us to number our days, the Bible tells us. And that's a mindset we need to all remind ourselves of. When Martin Luther and I'm referring to the reformer of the 1600s, uh, when Martin Luther found that the close of his life was imminent on the uh, 18th of February, he commended himself to God in the following prayer. My heavenly Father, eternal and merciful God, thou, thou hast revealed unto me thy dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom I have learned whom I have proclaimed to be my Lord, whom I love and whom I honor as my precious Savior and Redeemer, whom the ungodly persecute, dishonor, and blaspheme, take thou my soul unto thyself. In fact, he'd go on three different times to express these words on his deathbed. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O God of truth. So is the account of Martin Luther's deathbed experience that was given by Philip Melanchthon in his book, The Life and Acts of Martin Luther. There's different kinds of accounts of people finding themselves in those last moments of drawing physical breath. There's people that find themselves having lived their lives totally for themselves, no thought for God, and they get to that, that moment where they realize it's about to end. And a lot of times there is horror. There is typically a sense of dismay, abandonment, fear. What a blessing it is to be around a believer as they're passing through the valley of shadow of death. And to hear the confidence, to hear the longing in their voice. We just recently saw one of our dear sisters, Helen Gibson, uh, make that, that journey into the, the bosom of Jesus Christ, into the welcome arms of her Savior in the heavenly places. And as she did so, she, she did that with an anticipation, with a longing, with an enthusiasm to to be united with her Savior. That's how it ought to be with every believer. 
But it is entirely possible that someone that knows Christ as their Savior doesn't have that, that sense of unbridled joy, doesn't have that sense of, of, of longing to just let me go, let this silver cord break, let my soul return to my Maker, because there may be some regret, some regret of wasted years, uninvested resources, time, energy, passion. Martin Luther is a man who came to the end of his life, looked across the river of death with a sense of anticipation of being greeted by his Redeemer on the other shore. And when eulogized by Philip Melanchthon, he recalled Luther's boldness in the gospel and he said, quote, We have seen him endowed with a mighty potency of soul, unmoved by fear and unsubdued by terror. For he leaned on the sacred anchor, which is the power of God, nor did he allow his faith therein to be shaken. Wow, when I hear a testimony like that, I'm like, wow, what a tribute. And I find myself saying, I want to live my life. I want to be making choices day by day so that, that people will have a similar tribute. Not because I want people to think much of me, but I want people to think much of my Lord who I had confidence in to be able to say similar things. By nature, as we live our life day by day, we wake up and we enter into the next 24-hour period. There's a sense in which our, our fleshly appetites, which are still ravenous, unfortunately, they find a craving, a craving to attain comfort. Comfort in life, pleasure, ease. That is not abated completely. That's not fully eradicated yet. There is coming that day when we step on heaven's shore where we'll know those fleshly uh, wrong longings anymore. Praise God for that. But for the time being, we still have to keep under our body and bring it into subjection, as Paul would say later. And so we have these cravings for comfort in life. But what does the Bible tell us our focus needs to be? Reach out for comforts? No, instead, Jesus said, every day take up your cross. Think of the symbol of, of pain and suffering and sh shame, agony. Take that up. That's what it means to follow me, Jesus said. And if we hope to end our life strong, as Paul seems to be talking about here. And we need to give a high regard to how we are going to finish our life someday. So what do we need to give our concerns to? What do we need to be focusing on? Well, let's first of all talk about our concerns about finishing. Do we have a right level of concern? Is it something that has a level of importance for us? Most of my comments are going to be focused right on verse 24 today. That seems to be almost the climactic statement Paul makes in this section of verses that we read. But here in Acts 20, Paul was, again, to give the context, he's returning to Jerusalem 
from his third missionary journey. It was common knowledge that there was animosity towards this former Pharisee that is now turned to be a follower of the accursed Nazarene. That's how they looked at Jesus. And regardless, he went anyway. He went anyway. Why would he do that? Life was in certain jeopardy, in certain peril. And the answer is simply, he knew that it was what the Lord was leading him to do. Now, the Lord doesn't want us just to be people that have a maverick spirit, people that are reckless. But we do need to be a people of faith that if the Lord is clearly leading and directing us in a certain manner, that we not kowtow, that we not back away from what the Lord would have us to do. Paul expresses to these Ephesian elders that if personal injury come, he is willing to absorb it. He's willing to accept whatever those consequences are. Why? Because he's more concerned about how he completes his life rather than how he enjoys his life on a day-by-day basis. Deferred gratification is a tough thing to, for us to really buy into. It's so much easier for us to want to make decisions and choices based on the instant reward of the moment, isn't it? And for us to have the, the discipline and the acceptance and, of, and believe really the truth of God, that yes, my child, it will be hard. It will be grueling. It will be very unsatisfying for the time being. But set your eyes on Jesus Christ and finish your course well. So what should be our concerns as we think about our completion? Well, let's think about our completed condition. What is the completed condition? He talks about... The course, and that's a way of referring to just our life's journey, the, the journal of our days, if you would. And when we look back, if everything had been chronicled in our life, what would be characteristic of it? Paul says, I want it to be a spirit of joy. It's as if he's saying, as I'm laying on my deathbed and I'm thinking back over how I have walked in these recent years since I met Jesus, that there's a spirit of joy. You know, everyone's going to cross the line of life. Sometimes when we think about a race, you might think, well, some don't even make it across. But typically, runners, they all make it across eventually. We've perhaps seen those Olympic races where someone stumbles and injures themselves, and then they get up and they... They slowly limp across to the finish line. They're dead last, but they made it across. The question is, what will be the attitude associated with that moment? Will you have the contentment that you seized the opportunities in life that God gave you, that you didn't quench the Spirit of God as, as frequently as others did, but you were sensitive to His leading? that you exerted yourself in the faith of God and the grace of God to do what He called you to do, will that be on your mind? Will that be true? 
as you're thinking about it. Several years ago, we had a church picnic at McLean Park, and we had several smaller children uh, on that particular occasion. So we decided to have some children's games, little relays and sack races and things. And one of the, one of the games that we, we played was a spoon race. And each child was given a little plastic spoon. And uh, what they had to do was uh, there was a little bit of colored water put on this white plastic spoon from, from a bucket. And then they had to go to the end of the, the line or you know, go to the other side from start to finish. And then they had to tip kind of sideways. They couldn't use their hands, had to keep it in their mouth the whole time, into a little Dixie cup. And, and then, you know, and they just keep repeating this over and over again. They kept using the same spoon each, not, they didn't pass it on. Everybody had their own spoon, okay? <laughs> COVID-19 disclaimer there, okay? And they would do that. It was fascinating to watch these children to see how they would grasp this. Some kids only thought about speed, Okay? And so as they took off, they, they ran as fast as they could. But by the time they got to that Dixie cup to tilt their head sideways, guess what was true of that spoon? It was dry as a bone. It had all sloshed off the sides. Others, you know, watched, you know, their teammate or their opponent, and they got a little wiser. And so they would, they would go, you know, a little speed walk and, you know, being little shock absorbers and stuff and, mindful kinetically of what their body was doing and get down there a little bit more and some realized it was slower it was interesting to watch as they learned as the process went till finally the whistle was blown and there was a little comparison as to whose cup level of colored water was actually higher than the other one as i think back on that illustration i think you know what will be the condition as we cross into heaven well we have much to show we'll get we'll be there but will we have empty spoons so to speak of we're not trying to earn our way to heaven we know that jesus has paid it all praise the lord uh, we're not trying to have the scales tipped against you know our you know the whole santa claus theology that really messes with people's minds you know you, you know more more good than bad in behavior no it's our entrance into heaven the fact that we're allowed to be citizens there is based on the righteousness of jesus christ you know even our righteousness is like filthy rags we're told however how we conduct ourselves and how we take advantage of the moments that god gives to us does enter into the equation as far as our joy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, Paul is teaching on this topic. He says, Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it. In other words, there's going to be an accounting. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. This is a refiner's fire, if you would. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. In another passage, Paul likens it unto uh, category A, wood, hay, and stubble. Fire hits that, incinerated, it's just gone. 
On the other category B, gold, silver, precious stones. Fire hits it, well, it's refined. The dross is removed from the metals. It's, it's better than it was. And so we, we realize that there is, there is not a justifying of our right to enter into heaven, but there will be the sense of, have I done my best for Jesus? This yet so as by fire that he mentions in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 3 is the idea that we'll escape just through fire. In other words, picture your house on fire and waking up, coughing, realizing that as you look out into the, the living room through your halfway open bedroom door, uh, there's already an inferno there. And your thoughts are, perhaps it's just you and your wife as empty nesters, is realize, wow, you know, the house is, is in great peril here. Who knows if the, the structural integrity of it has already been compromised and at any moment, the, you know, the whole roof could cave in on us. So the thought really ought to be is, let's get out of here. Let's just exit the quickest way possible, out the front door, perhaps even through a window if you can't exit to, to get through the doorway method. There might be many things that are precious to you that you'll, you'll wish that you had and had the ability to take with you. But for sake of your life, you dare not take time to grab those things up. That's what he's talking about here. Individuals that will have lived their life in such a way that as they enter into eternity, it's like someone just escaping their house and they have nothing. Just make it with the clothes on their back, so to speak. The clothes that we go with on our back are the robes of Jesus Christ's righteousness. But I dare say, I hope that many of us will want to enter into heaven and depart from this life, not yet so as by fire. What a sad obituary that would be. He made it into heaven, but had nothing to show for the time on earth. Lived his life in vanity. Revelation 21.4 says that God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be those that enter in heaven and there will be a sense of, of momentary regret, if you would, and God in His love and kindness will wipe away those tears. How much better to not have the tears in the first place. So there is our completed condition. Paul then goes on to talk about our completed commission. He talks about this ministry that he had received, commissioned by Jesus Christ. You know, when you come to the end of your life, will you sense that you have done what Christ commissioned you to do? intended you to do you said i got my marching orders and i was true to them you may have been busy you may have done a lot of stuff but did you do what he wanted you to do there may be people that are consumed with ministry work doing church related items but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're on mission and the holy spirit guides us and directs us praise the lord for for someone that says, you know, I'll be, I'll be busy, you know, helping out with um, folding tracks and cleaning the church and 
mow the yard. But if the Holy Spirit's at the same time saying, when are you going to get around to witnessing to that neighbor next to you? We, we can't just simply pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm serving the Lord, I'm just doing it this way. Praise the Lord you're doing that. But are you following His commission? Are you doing what He has directed you to do? An editor assigns 66 authors the job of writing a commentary on a book of the Bible. Each had their own separate book. One man brings what he believes to be his magnum opus on the book of Mark. The editor commended this fine scholarship, but then informs him he cannot use his work, nor can he pay him for his time that he has invested in doing this. Why? the man asked. The editor then says, you had been commissioned with a job of writing a commentary on Matthew, not on the Gospel of Mark. A hole had been left in the set of commentaries because of this man's negligence. Do we understand the point? Are we doing what God would have us to do specifically? How tragic it would be to be told that though you worked hard, you're not doing your job. What souls would be overlooked by such negligence. And so let's be very honest and transparent today. The Holy Spirit has ways of directing in our lives. Let's not quench what He's directing us to do. Let's stay on mission. Do we live oblivious to the truth that Hebrews 9.27 is in fact in our Bibles, that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment, the accounting. There's no do-overs. There's no mulligans with life. Romans 14.10 tells us that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ as believers. Praise God we won't stand in front of the great white throne judgment of God, for our soul is secure in Jesus Christ. And our name is written in the, the book of life. But there will be a standing at the judgment seat of Christ as whether we invested our lives well in this world. Secondly, we're going to finish properly. Let's look at our course to finish. What about this course? What lay in Paul's path to finish to the finish line of life? Some things brought anxiety. Others brought strength. We could say the first two things that we're going to look at in a, just a minute here uh, are things that brought anxiety to him. The second two are those things that brought strength to him. But, in fact, all four of these things that he mentions are part of the composition of his course. Part of what made up his life as was designed by God for him. What were these four things? Number one, there's an expectancy of trouble. Well, that would definitely bring anxiety. I don't think Paul, Paul was not some individual like, you know, yes, you know, I can't wait to have a, a troublesome journey. Can't wait to, you know, I haven't, haven't checked shipwreck off my bucket list of things. Lord, will you send me a shipwreck, you know? And Lord, you know, I haven't been stoned since I was in Lister. It's about time for a good stoning again. 
But yet he did expect it. He knew it was part of Christian living. In fact, in verse 23, it says, Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. So he's already tipped off, if we can put it this way, by the Holy Spirit. He knows that as he takes this journey, that he's in for trouble. And yet, our Savior warned all of us as we journey through life to expect trouble, didn't he? In John 16, verse 33, he says to the disciples, which applies to us, In the world ye shall have tribulation. Mark it down. If you're going to live for me, finish your, follow your course properly, you're going to run into trouble. Just mark it down. Jesus also follows it up by saying, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. There's always that, that encouragement and that strength that the Lord gives us. But that still means there's still trouble. And most of us would like to have a life without problems. We looked at recently the life of, of Job and specifically focused on a statement by his wife that I, for lack of giving her first name, Mrs. Job. And her, her recommendation you know, to her husband is just, curse God and die, and he replies back to her, you know, shall we have good in this world and not trouble? In other words, rhetorically asking, you know, God does give us blessings. We've, we've had a wonderful life. So when God chooses to send problems, are we going to say God's no longer good because of that? We need to expect trouble. The Bible warns it over and over again. And so what are you in for? Some of you are already in it. Some of you are dealing with physical maladies. Some of you are dealing with broken families. Some of you are, are dealing with financial concerns. Just not a certainty as how things are going to pan out as far as that's concerned. You definitely aren't living in critical mass where you have enough money to tide you over until you draw your last breath. And, and all that can create a sense of turbulence and trouble in our lives. Well, friend, the Bible tells us that's part of our course. Don't be surprised. Secondly, he talks about the uncertainty of assaults. In verse 22, going back even a verse ahead of that, he talks about the fact that he doesn't know the things that shall befall me there. He knows he's in for trouble, but he doesn't know specifically what it is. Sometimes that can be even worse, can it? In other words, do you remember when you were a child, you know? And uh, you, your, your parent uh, got a phone call, maybe from a teacher, or at least imagine it. You're probably all too good to, to be, you know, involved in something like this, perhaps, but well-behaved in school. But, you know, hey, Mrs. Jones, uh, tomorrow will you come into my office first thing and, and bring Sally with you? I just need to have a chat. Well, immediately Sally knows what? I'm in trouble, right? How well is Sally going to sleep that night? Probably not very well at all. Sally may be in her mind thinking, okay, which is it, okay? Did it, is it this? Is it that, you know? <laughs> going through the different things. 
and, and the worst part is, and what's the consequences going to be? Am I going to be suspended? You know, am I going to be, you know, put, uh, put off of the sports team? You know, is this, how embarrassing is this going to be around my peers? And so there's the uncertainty of the problems that come. That's what he's talking about here. He says, I know I'm in for it when I head back into Jerusalem. And I know people are going to be out, but I don't know specifically what they're going to do to me. You know, maybe they're just going to shun me. Maybe they're going to, it's going to be like Lystra. They're going to drag me out of the city and stone me. I just don't know. Sometimes that uncertainty is the worst part of it, isn't it? It's just that naggingness of not knowing what it is. So these are two things about his course that he, he knew to be true of his life. And they brought anxiety, no doubt, to him, or potentially could have. But then he talks about two other things that no doubt helped him and encouraged him. There's the divine compelling. This, when he says, I, I go bound in the Spirit. Now, you might not at first think, you know, how is that a positive thing? To me, I don't like a sense of when I'm about to take an action, having the uncertainty of, eh, is this right or is it not right? I mean, I'd, I'd like to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is precisely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what I'm supposed to do. I don't like having that feeling of, mm, this might not turn out right. I might really blow this. And yet, Paul, what he is indicating here is when he says, I go bound in the Spirit, he's talking about the compellingness of the Holy Spirit having imposed upon him the way of truth with regard to this particular direction going back to Jerusalem. And this is what's really helping him. As unpleasant it is to think about not knowing what I'm in for from my fellow man and knowing that I am going to have trouble, it is such a comfort to know that I am doing exactly what the Lord wants me to do. I'm bound in my spirit. I can't do otherwise. And then he says, none of these things move me. And this speaks of his divine courage. And so none of these things move me or is talking about the other two things, the negative, the things that cause him anxiety. No, you know, knowing that uh, he, things are going to befall him and that the Holy Ghost had witnessed that afflictions abide him or waiting for him, we might say. And because he knows the Holy Spirit has directed him this way, and this is God's divine direction, he's like, I'm not going to be dissuaded. And that's where courage really comes from. If you know the truth, then you can move forward by faith, and that is what real biblical courage is all about. Biblical courage doesn't mean that you don't have any anxiety, that you're not nervous about it. It means that you're so overwhelmingly compelled to move forward in obedience that you don't let these mitigating factors, these negative things, keep you from doing it. The Bible never tells us that, that Daniel or his three friends, when they were put in those positions, Daniel in the lion's den, uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego put in the fiery furnace, that they didn't have sweaty palms, that their knees weren't knocking together, 
there, there might have been some thoughts that swirled through their minds that, that made them a little concerned. But Daniel was like, you know what? The Lord can save me, but if he doesn't, you know, so be it. That's courage. By faith, walking into the path that the Lord has told us to follow obediently. Have you been tempted to interpret circumstances that bring anxiety in the course of life as reasons to detour? Once you know, well, this is what the Spirit of God is leading me to do, and then you start thinking about these things that are sort of uh, make you a bit nervous. Well, maybe I should rethink this. That's a dangerous thing to do, folks. If we know what the Lord is leading us to do, let's not let negative factors dissuade us from doing it. There's our course to finish with joy. And then thirdly, what is our concept of finishing? Well, it should represent the example of Christ. And it should also resound with an exhortation. But as far as the example of Christ, Paul uh, undoubtedly would have been familiar with the, the words of Jesus in John 17, 4. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Jesus is praying back to his Father. And what a wonderful prayer that was Jesus to be able to pray. I have finished the work. And, and Paul seems to be able to say, you know, I want to be able to say that. Hopefully there's something inside of you that says, yeah, I want to follow the example of Christ. Just when I come to the end of my life, I want to be able to say just as Jesus did with his earthly ministry to his heavenly father. I want to be able to say that about my earthly ministry to my heavenly father. I have finished the work. It should represent the example of Christ. As I mentioned, it should also resound with exhortation to other Christians. Paul begins by asking, are you not aware are you not aware? He's, he's asking this question. He's pricking their thinking. You know, where has your mind been? Do you not already think this way like I'm talking? His explanation to, quote, run and strive is followed by his disclosure of his own resolution in verse 26. What does he say? I, therefore, this is what, I do. This is how I handle things. He's not bragging, but he's saying, listen, you know, what I'm doing is great for you to do as well. Why? Because this is biblical. When he writes to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, he says this, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? Again, using the, the analogy of a, a foot race. But one receiveth the prize. So, run. In other words, run after this manner. Why? That ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. In other words, leading up to race time, you exercise some self-discipline. A good runner today is not someone that, you know, keeps the, you know, the bonus pack of Skittles in his inside coat pocket all the time and is just sitting there feeding on sweet candy. You know, you don't find that happening. He's thinking, okay, I need to, I need to have a lot of protein in my diet, then I need to carb up the day before, and everything is about the, the run. Sleeping well, getting in my fluids, all of this. 
and we need to have the same mindset. We need to realize there's things that we take out of our life, things that we say no to, things that we say yes to. Why? Because it helps us to run the course of our life well. We need to be temperate in all things. He goes on to say, now they do it, these runners of physical races, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. Literally, they would receive what was called a a laurel wreath. It was just really some foliage that was put around there, and it really did fade and decay rather rapidly. It wasn't a gold medal like they get in the Olympics today. But they got the sense of, but I'm victorious. I'm the winner. And And he's saying, they put all that energy and all that mental focus and all that commitment into something that's going to be forgotten. None of us can name winners of races that were victorious during the days of Paul. There's no, there's no chronicle of them. We don't know. I mean, but at that time, as Paul was writing to these Corinthians, they had what was called the Isthmian Games, very similar to our Olympics. And people followed it with great interest. They showed up to the arenas. They watched these things. And it was all the buzz after the race was over who had won. It was a discussion in the marketplace. And there was great fame for a short time. Who remembers them now? Nobody. And he says this. Think about all the commitment and energy and fervency that those runners put into that. And it's a corruptible crown. And then Paul says this in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 9. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. All that in verses 26 and 27 sum up to talk about, I am engaged in great self-discipline. I am making daily choices so that I can be as efficient and as effective as a servant for Jesus Christ as I possibly can be. Why? I want to finish my course well. It should resound with exhortation to Christians. Paul is doing that so that they might know. He's passionate about it in his own life, but he says, I want you to get it, Corinthians. Ephesian elders, I want you to understand that. And Paul wants us to get it as well. Thirdly, it should reflect an exhilaration before others. You know, we don't hear an audio recording of Paul saying this, so we have to be careful about imposing. But as I read these verses, I have a hard time not hearing the passion in Paul's voice. You know, I don't think he's saying, well, therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, and I keep under my I don't hear that kind of tone, do you? I mean, I can't imagine him not having a great impassioned spirit about what he is saying. He's excited. Here's another verse that talks about his exhilaration. 2 Timothy 4, 6. Paul says, you know, I'm getting to the end. I don't know. My days are numbered. He says, for I am now ready. I am ready. What? To be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. I hear excitement, enthusiasm in the words of Paul here. Forget about what his you know, intonation might have been. I mean, he's, he is going on about this and saying, you know what, this is what I'm living for. I'm excited about it. And folks, if we only go through life focusing on what we do as a sense of duty, well, this is what Christians are supposed to do, not that excited about it, I don't want to disappoint Jesus, and we're going to find ourselves cyclically falling out of obedience to Christ, repenting, coming back, you know, in guilt. Oh, forgive me, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that, you know. Help me to get back to following the Holy Spirit's leading my life, keeping on course. But if instead we realize, yes, there's problems, there's persecutions, there's troubles, but there's nothing like serving Jesus right here in the present. It's not just about hearing well done someday. It's about knowing that right now I am serving my Lord and Master. Do others sense that exuberance in you and me as we're making our way to our real home, our final destiny? Do, do they sense in us? Now, that's an, a Christian that I would like to be like. Or they's like, yeah, all the Christians I know, they just seem kind of sad. They just feel, you know, they come across as if, well, I'm doing this out of reluctance. No wonder people aren't seeing us as salt. Because we aren't living in the joy of the Lord. And there's joy in serving Jesus, is there not? I'd like to give you two more passages. One is in Matthew 25, 21. Jesus tells the parable of the stewards and the servants who have been entrusted with resources, come back, make an accounting. And one is not faithful, but two are. I like what he says to one of the faithful ones. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Few, many. You know, really what God gives to us here is categorized as few in comparison to the great amount of wonderful responsibility and opportunities to serve Him in heavenly places someday. There's another place where the Bible tells us, Jesus asked the question, you know, do you, do you not know that you're going to judge angels someday as believers? And that scratch makes us scratch our heads. What's that going to look like? You know, I'm going to I'm going to be in a place of duty where I'm basically directing angels and they're reporting back to me. The Bible tells us that, but that's only part of it. We don't. I have not seen, ear have not heard heard the things that He's prepared for us that love Him. There's so much more. It's going to be amazing. But what we do know is that there is joy as we enter into the Lord, as we've been faithful of the few things. And he's got so much waiting for us. Paul in 1 Timothy 6.12, the second verse I want to leave you with, he's telling Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. It's a battle, Timothy. 
lay hold on eternal life. In other words, keep your grip on that mindset. Whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Do we think enough about life being eternal? I remember when our daughter Deborah went on the Australian mission team, and the the team came here to our church. Many of you were here. You might remember this. Dr. Matsko and his wife were doing a presentation. The team were singing, giving testimonies. The video presentation they gave uh, talked about a gentleman in Australia that basically went around with a piece of chalk writing one word on sidewalks, parking lots, all over the place. Anybody remember what the word was? Eternity. Eternity. Now, they even memorialized that in one of their New Year's Day celebrations. The man passed away. And maybe for a a lot of people, that, that simple looking at that word eternity made them stop and think, yeah, am I ready for that? That there is eternity? That I don't just die and go into oblivion? That there is an eternal life? Either a a blessed eternal life in heavens or an eternal death in the lake of fire. No doubt there were many that were given the gospel and responded to it because of that. But I'm reminded, do we really think about the eternality that sits ahead of us? That it's not about just this day, the last day of May. Tomorrow begins June 1st. We turn one calendar. For some of us, it's like, wow, we're into another month. And, and, and as we move through time, we look back and we think, wow, where did the time go? You know, we're now Nana and Papa. Wow, how did we become grandparents? Okay, well, we know how it happened, okay? But it's like, as Becky would say, our baby had a baby, right? Most of you, you've been there. You've, you, know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it happened like that. Overnight, it seemed like. And then ahead of us. And yet life seems like this huge thing. Like, wow, been alive all this time and married all this time. It's just a speck. It's just a speck. And yet we, we put all of our energy, all of our focus, all of our, our daily choices, what we think about first when we wake up in the morning, what we think about last as we go to bed at night, how much of it is really focused on the line moving ahead with the arrow in eternity. And there, there's coming a point where what we can do, how we can invest in this life will stop. We can't go back and relive it. Paul the Apostle, who before was called Saul, after his great travail and unspeakable labors in promoting the gospel of Christ, this is taken from Fox's Book of Martyrs, he suffered also in this first persecution under Nero. Abdias declared that Under his execution, Nero sent two of his esquires, Fariga and Parthimius, to bring him word of his death. 
They, coming to Paul, instructing the people, desired him to pray for them, that they might believe. Who told them, Paul told them, that shortly after they should believe and be baptized at his sepulcher. This done, the soldiers came and led him out of the city to the place of execution where he, after his prayers made, gave his neck to the sword. Wow. Right on the threshold of his physical death and his entrance into heaven. People are impacted by the gospel through his life. I look at that and I think, Lord, may that be so in my life. Not because I want people to say great things about me. Not that you want people to say great things about you. But that as we come into the end of our lives, realize I used it wisely. That I I was a good soldier of the cross. I, I took it up. And, and I fought against those, those, those tendencies in my flesh and against the spiritual warfare in high places. Why? Because of my love for Jesus and wanting my life to count. You know, we can't pay Jesus back for what He did on the cross. But there is a spirit of love. And if we love Him, the Bible says, we'll obey Him. Let's be faithful even unto death. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. The reminders to us through the exhortation of Paul, mostly by your Holy Spirit, through your inspired word. Lord, I pray now that you would work in our hearts. Help us to soberly be open to what the Holy Spirit is moving in our hearts to teach us. Lord, that we might be responsive. And that, Lord, if there is a pricking, if there's a convicting, Lord, we'll yield. We'll confess if there's something that needs to be confessed. But, Lord, that we might enter into a lifelong pursuit of ministry that is characterized as joyful, that is characterized as being motivated by love. And that that joy for the ministry and that love for our Savior would so eclipse the problems and troubles of this life that we will remain faithful till we draw our last breath. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.